0: Well, I invite you to please remain standing as you turn with me in God's Word to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be reading Exodus one fifteen through chapter 2, verse 10. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 45. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. Or sorry, he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, "I drew him out of the water." So ends the reading of God's word. All grass withers and all flowers fade, but God's word is eternal. Let us pray that He would meet us in it and speak to us from it. Our gracious God, You who dwell within the pages of Your word, we long to know You. We long to see you revealed within your scriptures, and so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory, and that you would give us faith to receive all that we see in there. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Last year a movie came out depicting Winston Churchill's rise to power in England in 1940 at the height of Germany's strength during World War II, and it was called The Darkest Hour. And, of course, it's a play on Churchill's famous speech, uh, Their Finest Hour, which he delivered just one month after he became prime minister in England in 1940. In it, he said... The battle of Britain is upon—sorry—is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward in broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science." Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. So, why was the movie called the darkest hour (laughs) if his speech is actually called their finest hour? And I think the answer is simple. It's because the time was so dark that the great opportunity presented itself. The atrocities of the 30s and the 40s are among the darkest in human history. Hitler's regime was responsible for the murder of 17 million people, 6 million of which simply because of their ethnicity. They were Jewish and that was nothing but abject wickedness. Born of insecurity, fear, and self-centeredness. The pain that was experienced during that time is among the greatest our world has ever known. And humanity looks at that time and it tries to reconcile how such evils can be carried out. Families were torn apart Infants ripped from their mother's arms. Husbands and wives torn apart. Many never to see each other again. And I think, if we're honest, we don't like to think about it. Because the pain is too much. It was indeed Europe's darkest hour. And it's precisely at the darkest hours... That the possibility of greatness presents itself. And that's true in all of history. In fact, if we're honest, some of the atrocities carried out last century were not unique in history. They were not unique for the Jewish people. They had experienced genocide before, they had had their infants torn from their arms before. In fact, the Holocaust of the last century echoes of at least two other incidences in Israel's history. And we want to look at both of those today as we consider the birth of Jesus. Each December, the world slows down to consider the birth of Jesus, what we call the incarnation. The eternal God who has no body who is uncreated, who is eternal, who is perfect life and who cannot die. This God became man and entered into his creation. But as discussion turns to his birth every year, there are a few tendencies that we want to guard against. The first is to think that December is the only time we can talk about his birth. It is far too important for that. It should be part of our conversation all year, every Sunday. The Bible did not tell us to celebrate Jesus' birthday in December. He was probably born in the spring. That It's neither here nor there. The Bible teaches us to celebrate that Jesus came to earth every week. And that first tendency can lead to a second. And that is to think that everything the Bible has to say about the birth of Jesus can be found in Matthew and Luke and John, and maybe a couple passages on Isaiah and Malachi. So over the past several years, starting in Genesis, we have been looking at key passages in the Bible that talk about births and see how each one of these is intended to prepare us for the birth of Jesus. Each one teaches us something important about how and why he would be born. And there's one more tendency. Sadly, we sometimes miss just how sobering a reality it was that God became man. We miss that it was humiliating for God to become man. And we miss, or at least race over, just how dark the hour was when he came. But it's only when we see how dark the hour was that we can truly understand all that Jesus came to do. And so as we look at this passage this morning, my hope is is to show you that Jesus entered into the depths of our pain and our misery, our darkness, in order to draw us out of it through a salvation that he alone can offer. That's why he came. Now, Egypt in the 16th century BC, that's around 1500 BC for those who struggle with centuries and when that was, it was not unlike Germany in the middle of the last century. Egypt Egypt at the time was ruled by an insecure tyrant who feared the loss of power. He was consumed by paranoia and focused his fears on the Jewish people. And he worried that they would one day become too strong and threaten his glory, his kingdom, his seat of power. And so what was his solution? It's the solution of all tyrants. Murder. And we read in Exodus that he started with a secret plot. He told the midwives who worked with the Jewish women to kill all the male children who were born to the Jews. And you get the idea. They were supposed to do it secretly, as if no one would notice that none of of the Hebrew male children survived birth, but all of the females did miraculously. But the midwives feared God, and they refused to do it. And they let all the children live. And the Lord rewarded their faith. But Pharaoh was undeterred, And what had started as a secret plot was made public. It was made law. A decree was issued. The Egyptians were turned loose on the Jews and told to kill all their male children by throwing them into the Nile River. This time, his wishes were followed out and a holocaust commenced. And for a period, we don't know how long, the Bible doesn't tell us. Every male born to the Jewish people was executed for no crime but his ethnicity and gender. Every boy, every family. It's unimaginable. And yet, it's reality. There was a time when Israel would have had no boys within a certain age, maybe at one and two, maybe at three and four, but each year that that void, that gap would maintain. A constant reminder of what could never be filled, never be recaptured, a constant reminder that they were hated. And they were at the mercy of an evil tyrant. A reminder of their need for salvation, for a rescuer. It was their darkest hour. But there was one. One who escaped. There was a family among the tribe of Levi who took their son and they hid him. But the day came when they could hide him no longer. And in a moment of desperation, his mother placed him in a basket and hid him among the reeds in the Nile River. And in God's providence, who should walk by? The Pharaoh's own daughter. And you think, all is lost. It's the murderer's own family. But she took Pity on him and she chose to raise him in her father's house and she named him Moses which means draw out since he had been drawn out of the water this Hebrew boy grew up hidden in plain sight raised in the Pharaoh's home ate at his table Trained by his tutors. And so he received the very best education, the very best training. It would take 80 years before Israel understood what began with that birth. He was the one selected by God to rescue his people. Into the darkest hour, was born the one who would deliver God's people. Because it's precisely at the darkest of hours that the possibility for greatness presents itself. And so the birth of Moses and his rescue from death out of the Nile, being drawn out of that river, uh, that place of death, signaled the coming of salvation. It would be Israel's finest hour When a ragtag band of slaves turned the greatest empire the world knew on its head. They didn't run, they, they walked to freedom. Pharaoh's attempt to pursue them would be his undoing. And so that Deliverance, that exodus out of Egypt under Moses became Israel's defining moment. From then on, God would refer to himself as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so even though the Jewish empire lasted for another thousand years, this was their finest moment. they would eventually be conquered and carried into exile and return again. But the glory of those thousand years would never be matched. But the suffering with which it began would repeat itself in all too familiar ways. Once again, they were no longer free, but enslaved to a foreign empire. Once again, they were ruled by a tyrant. This, name, this time, his name was Herod. And he was no less evil, no less insecure, no less self-centered. And then the threat to his comfort came. Some foreigners from the east came and told him that they had followed the signs to Bethlehem, that they were looking for the new king who had been born. And the fear that had once gripped Pharaoh now gripped Herod, and he chose the old tried and true method of tyrants, murder. First, he tried to get the foreigners to to betray the location of this this new king, Jesus. But like the midwives, so many years before, they feared God and they refused to betray him. They slipped out before Herod could interrogate them. And so like so many years before, plan A didn't work. And so Pharaoh, like Pharaoh, Herod sent his soldiers to Bethlehem where Jesus the king was born. And he had all the Jewish male children, two years and under, murdered. Every boy, every family, Unimaginable. And yet reality. And so yet again, all the pain and heartache of 1,500 years earlier came flooding back. They were right back where they had been. They would have that void every year, those those two years of missing boys. We have three-year-olds... We have six year olds, but no four and five year olds. The vacuum would never be filled. There was a constant reminder that they were hated and that they were at the mercy of an evil tyrant, a reminder that they were in need of salvation, that they needed a rescuer. Again, it was their darkest hour. And yet again, there was one. One who escaped. Mary and Joseph had been warned by an angel to take Jesus and hide him. Where? Where Moses was hidden, of course, in Egypt. Hidden in plain sight in the land of Israel's oldest of enemies. And if you know the Bible, if you know your history, the parallels are are unavoidable. Too precise to be coincidence. And so your heart dares to hope. Will a new Moses be raised up? Will God yet again send a rescuer? Will this yet again be their finest hour? Well, the baby wasn't named Moses. Joseph was given very specific instructions on what to name him. The angel told him, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people. There it is. Jesus will save his people. He will draw them out. He will be the new Moses but I didn't read the full verse. The angel did not tell Joseph that that Jesus would save his people from Herod or even the emperor in Rome. You know the words. He said, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Israel's greatest problem was not their foreign occupiers. It was not a tyrannical king in Jerusalem or in Rome. Their greatest problem was much greater than that. It was their own sin, their own rebellion against their God. There was a spiritual reality deeper and darker than their political reality. You see, mankind's darkest hour had really taken place many years earlier, long before the days of Moses. It took place shortly after the world was made when another tyrant, the tyrant, the original tyrant, of whom all other tyrants are but mere echoes, when he came into God's garden and sought to enslave Adam and Eve. The Bible calls him the devil, Satan, the serpent, and as we saw in Revelation, the dragon. And he promised power and freedom, but all he delivered was death and slavery. In a moment, in a single action, all humanity was plunged into darkness Beloved, that was our darkest hour. But it's precisely at the darkest of hours that the opportunity, the possibility of greatness presents itself. And so no sooner had Adam and Eve rebelled against God than he announced that he would send a rescuer, one born to a woman, and yet greater than the serpent. He would crush the serpent and he would rescue God's people. And as time went on, God told us more about him. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be called out of Egypt. He would be a descendant of King David. And as Joseph and Mary held their child, he met every single one of these requirements. It would be another 30 years or so before Israel would understand what began with his birth. But he was the one God sent to rescue his people. Into the darkest of hours, one was born who could deliver them from eternal slavery. And so it would be humanity's finest hour when a ragtag band of disciples turned the world on its head. Satan would attempt to destroy Jesus on the cross, but it would be his undoing. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt of his people that they owed for their sin. And in the resurrection, he conquered death so that it could no longer hold or enslave his people. Jesus didn't lead his people out of slavery in Egypt or Rome out of slavery to sin and death. And so the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ become our defining moment, our defining act. The world could last another million years and this would always be our finest moment. A few months back in our study of Revelation, we saw that when Jesus was born, Satan just tried to devour him. He used Herod as he had used Pharaoh, but he was behind the attack on this infant born in Bethlehem. Revelation 12 calls him the dragon. It's interesting. That's what Isaiah called Egypt, (laughs) who sought to devour Moses. Revelation goes on and says that as Moses was drawn out of the water, Jesus was taken up Into heaven. And at that point, the dragon turned his attention to devour God's people, you and me. And the Bible says that that will continue until Jesus returns to take us to heaven with him. God's people will never be at home in this world. Any more than Israel was at home in Egypt or under Roman occupation. Some countries have seen God's people murdered out of fear and self-centeredness and it can appear dark as as it has at other times in history. But what does history teach us? It teaches us that it's precisely at the darkest hours that God delivers his people. It teaches us that God never fails. It teaches us that the enemy never wins. It teaches us that salvation starts with the birth of a child who cannot be destroyed, try as they might. And so, when we are tempted to despair and think all is lost, God calls us to look back at an event 2,000 years ago. A young virgin gave birth to the greatest threat the devil could ever imagine. For most people, that event went, went largely unnoticed, It was met with a decree, a holocaust ushered by Herod. Many innocent children lost their lives. It was a time bathed in tragedy and sadness. But for us, it was our finest hour. And now we must wait to see the effects, the full effects of that, to be fully realized and felt. But we have a promise from God that he will protect us that he has delivered us. And so Revelation 12 goes on. And do you remember what it says? That that the the church, the woman, escaped into the wilderness to be nourished by God. And that sounds backwards. You seldom think of the, the, the wilderness as a place of nourishment and care. But in God's strange economy, it is. Because that's where Israel was taken away from slavery. But they didn't starve. And why didn't they? Because God fed them with manna from heaven every day. It was not an easy time. Many of them lost their lives along the way. But there was a promise there that not even death could keep them from their inheritance. And there was that constant reminder day after day, God has not abandoned you. God is feeding you. God is caring for you with the, he- the bread from heaven, the manna. And the point was clear. God had not brought them out there to lose them now. This was just the way, the road to glory. And so too, we are somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. But we have a promise that we are headed somewhere. We have A promise that the victory has been won, that the end of the story has already been written. And to assure us of that, God feeds us along the way as a reminder of where we are headed. Before us is the Lord's Supper which is meant to remind us of all these realities, meant to nourish us in the wilderness, even as God nourished Israel in the wilderness. And so the Lord invites weary travelers, and he assures them that the victory has been won, that one greater than Moses, born under a cloud of darkness, has come and rescued us. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward, that we might receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And please pray with me. Our gracious God, we confess that this world is hard and it is filled with many evils. And we confess that it is man who let them into your creation. Our sinful sinful rebellion has shown itself in many ways over the years, some more heinous than others, but all are rebellion against you. We confess our greatest need is not freedom from oppressors, not the remedy of human injustices, but forgiveness for our offenses against you. And so we thank you that Jesus came into the darkest of worlds, at the darkest of hours, not for any need of his, but to seek and to save the lost. His life, his horrid death, and his triumphant resurrection are our salvation. And so we praise you for the gift of your Son. May his name be praised today and every day. May we meditate and proclaim these realities, every Lord's Day. And may you receive all glory, honor, and praise. Amen.